and welcome on in to another supplemental episode of Dogs in Autumn, the History of American Football. I'm hitting you with another Synced with Present Events episode for the algorithm. Sorry about it, but not really. Nah, actually what's going on is I decided to reread Tony Barnhart's book, Southern Fried Football, before I put the script for the next episode in the can and call it done. It sounds like a lot of work for a 15-minute episode, but reading Tony Barnhart is never really work anyway. Today, instead, I'm going to cover the history of the NFL Draft. This will come up here and there once we get to it, but for the structure of my main narrative, it's not important very often, but it is interesting enough in its own right to merit a little bonus episode. As usual, I'm happy to be here, and of course, very happy to have you here as well. First, let's step all the way back. For a sports league, you have several competing needs to keep it healthy. First and foremost, the thing needs to generate profit. For it to do that, it needs fans. To keep fans, you need to have a product the fan can invest their emotions, time, and therefore, money into. Now, most fans of any sport root for one team and one team only, over and above all other concerns. And you want your team to win. If you're anything like me, you don't only want your team to win, you want everyone else to lose. And there's an individualized calculus to determine who you'd like to see lose more. And that formula will allow you to watch the sport even when your own team maybe isn't doing too great. This is the way sports are meant to be enjoyed. But on the business side, you ideally want to see a lot of fans thinking and behaving exactly like that for every team in your league. And on that side of things, no team struggling, at least not financially, is good for business. You don't want to see that at all. That's the kind of thing that makes you think maybe some teams don't need to exist or at least need to be moved around. So to prevent the kind of competitive stagnation at the top that can cause teams further down the food chain to struggle, you need to have a plan in place. For example, across much of international soccer, they have a promotion and relegation system. This means the worst teams in one league get relegated to a lower level of competition, while the best teams in the lower level get promoted in their place. Theoretically, this keeps some parity in each level of competition, but what it certainly does is create meaningful late-season games between teams on the threshold of disaster. But that isn't the NFL method. It isn't the method in any American sports league, not even MLS. And that's because in American sports, we have closed leagues with player drafts. A closed league is the opposite of a promotion and relegation system. Teams within the league are fixed, regardless of their performance. This developed initially for baseball to account for the enormous distances between franchises and the associated travel costs. It was considered simply too financially risky for the league to allow the kind of off-field competition for supporters that was developing for early soccer in the UK or that had already begun to develop for baseball on the East Coast. To offset the costs and make investing in a top-flight baseball team less risky, the forerunner of Major League Baseball decided to place limits on the number of teams in competition and the closed league was born. Fast forward to the 1930s and the NFL has existed as a closed league for around a decade and they have a problem. See, they've gotten big enough that playing in the NFL is starting to be worth real money. And there's a fullback in Minnesota who figured that out. His name is Stan Koska, and everybody wants him. He fielded offers from Philadelphia, Green Bay, Chicago, Pittsburgh, everybody. And Burt Bell, the owner of Philly, wants him particularly bad. But they already know how it's going to go. 
Green Bay or Chicago is going to offer him some insane contract, probably $1,500, maybe even $2,000 to go sign with them. And even if they keep it reasonable, he'll still probably sign with them just because they win. They're the ones who make the papers every week, not little old Philly. And Burt Bell was right, but not quite right enough. Costco took his offer from Chicago and showed it to Green Bay. Then he took Green Bay's counteroffer and showed it to Chicago and Pittsburgh. He went through the whole league this way, and by the time the whole thing was done, Stan Costco signed with the Brooklyn Dodgers for $5,000 and no, not to play baseball. In today's money, that contract was worth about $113,000, which doesn't sound like a lot for a professional football contract, but at the time it was unheard of. In the aftermath, Bell proposed the draft. His rationale was that in addition to preventing an all-out bidding war, a draft would ensure a level of parity, even for the poor, less well-known franchises, that would be a benefit for the entire league. The other owners agreed unanimously. The first NFL draft was held in 1936. There was no media coverage, and no NFL team had established a scouting department yet, so teams were drafting players from all around the country based almost entirely off media reports with some in-person scouting for colleges that were local to them. Of the 90 players in the pool for the first draft, 81 were selected, but only 24 signed. This wasn't a problem, though. Most college players at the time were just uninterested in continuing football beyond school. The rules for the first draft gave the worst team in the league the exclusive right to bargain with a player of their choosing first. If they couldn't reach an agreement, the team could trade that pick to another team or appeal to the president of the NFL to attempt to negotiate a settlement. If no settlement could be reached, the player would be placed on an inactive reserve list for whichever team was the last to hold the right to sign him, and consequently, that player would be unable to sign with any other NFL teams that year. Between 1935 and 1960, the draft went largely unnoticed compared to what it's become in more recent decades, but not for lack of points of interest. In 1940, the entire league passed on Kenny Washington from UCLA, almost certainly the best college football player that season because he was black. He wound up breaking that particular racial barrier himself just a few years later when he signed with the Rams as a free agent after they moved to LA, but no black player would be drafted for several more years until the Bears attempted to draft George Talaferro. The next big change was professional scouting. Now, scouting is as old as sports, of course, but the way we think of it today as a professional occupation for which one is paid to scout talent, it really only got going in the late 40s. As expensive as it was to send scouts to colleges all around the country, though, a professional evaluation is obviously better than relying purely on the opinions of sports journalists. However, 1960 is the year the draft starts along the path that will see it become the event we know today. That year's draft had to compete with the upstart AFL draft. And whereas some players had spurned the NFL for other leagues in the past, like the aforementioned George Talaferro in 1949, no other league had ever been as successful in stealing the NFL's thunder as the AFL would be in 1960. Among others, they signed Heisman Trophy winner Billy Cannon from LSU. Having a true competitor, even if only for a few years, turned the draft into something more high stakes, something more, dare I say, entertaining. And given that this was the period in which television was exploding, the trends shaping the sport behind the scenes in the competing drafts were more evident to the public than ever before. 
and one of those trends was the drafting of black players, especially players from small, historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs. I'm going to do an episode at some point about HBCUs and their football history soon, but for the purposes of the draft, the main thing to know is that the NFL largely ignored HBCUs through its first few decades, even after it had ended its period of segregation in the 40s. The AFL, as the upstart league with less money and less legitimacy, couldn't afford to pretend that great players weren't great players just because they didn't play for a program in the Big Ten or Pacific Coast Conference. They took athletes from schools like Grambling and Southern and North Carolina A&T, in addition to competing for talent from the major college programs. But after the AFL-NFL merger, even with ever-increasing revenues and player salaries, the draft remained itself mostly a matter for insiders, the purview of lawyers, athletes, managers, and agents, not home audiences. This finally began to change when ESPN launched in 1980 as the first dedicated sports network, carried by the rapid spread of cable television. From there, the evolution of the draft into full-blown content happened more or less exponentially. Today, to watch every second of NFL draft coverage would require multiple screens for ESPN, ABC, and the NFL Network. You'd wind up hearing analysis from some combination of veteran players and coaches, broadcast personnel from both the NFL and college sides of the sport, celebrities, musicians, and former politicians. That doesn't even touch the kind of alternative media coverage preferred by sickos like me. Now, the 2023 NFL Draft will mark the 88th iteration, and it's now a fully integrated piece of a carefully and strategically constructed annual calendar of NFL content. The greatest amount of interest is for the first round, of course, as those 32 picks are a theoretical preview of the next generation of football superstars, though it's never quite panned out that way. Anyone watching beyond the first round is probably either a super fan of their team and therefore a sicko, or a fantasy football sicko, or somewhat bizarrely a college football sicko who may or may not otherwise care about the NFL, but draft results have implications for college recruiting. The rules for the draft today are a little more complex on the back end, but the spirit of it is more or less the same. The worst team gets the first pick, and subsequent picks are ordered from there in order of record worst to best. Teams can still trade picks, both for other draft picks or for current players, and how they manage their draft picks and salary cap goes a long way to determining which NFL teams are on top at any moment in time. How the draft plays out and how that changes over time is a fascinating look at the evolution of the sport, too. In the 2005 draft, for example, two running backs from Auburn alone went in the top five overall picks, Cadillac Williams and Ronnie Brown. Today, it's rare to see a running back go higher than the second round. Quarterbacks have always been at the top of the list, obviously, but one position that's crept higher and higher year over year has been edge rusher. In the shape of this ebb and flow, you can suss out the evolution of the game over the last two decades toward ever more passing and a corresponding need for elite pass defense. Since its beginnings, it's a bureaucratic concession for administrators with maybe a touch of sour grapes to one of the pillars of the NFL's annual content cycle. The draft is one of the primary reasons for the parity seen across the league. As an assurance of competitive play, the results are genuinely unmatched by promotion and relegation systems in other sports around the world. Whether or not that's the point anymore is another matter entirely, and I figure you can probably come up with your own answer to that for the time being. But thanks for listening. 
If you feel like reaching out, you can find me on Twitter at Dogs in Autumn, one word, or email me at dogsinautumn at gmail.com. Also, leave a rating or review if you're feeling generous with your time. I'd really appreciate it. I'll see you next time for the early days of Southern football. Till then. Thank you.